Hello and welcome to the Irish, or should that be Irish, Murdoch podcast. Today I'm joined by three guests who together will be able to answer the, the major question that we're dealing with today, just how Irish was Iris? We'll be covering her biography, her novels, obviously the major novels, The Red and the Green and The Unicorn, but we'll also be talking about her only short story, Something Special, uh, her connections to the Anglo-Irish novelist Elizabeth Bowen, as well as the culture and the landscape that went into her work. And I'm really looking forward to this one. We've got some um, three fantastic guests. First up, we've got um, Ian Dalton, who's a, a historian. Hello, Ian. Hello. Uh, Ian's a historian of Southern Irish Protestantism, and he's the author of a monograph, Protestant Society and Politics in Cork in the early 19th century. And he's currently researching books about the Royal Historical Society's Alexander Prize and its place in British historiography, um, 1897 to 2005. And he's currently a visiting research fellow at the Centre for Contemporary Irish History at Trinity College Dublin, where he's speaking to us uh, from today. We also have Francis White. Hello, Francis. Hello. Um, Francis, of course, is no stranger to the podcast, um, being the Deputy Director of the Iris Murdoch Research Centre here at Chichester. And, uh, of course, the author of the award-winning short biography, Becoming Iris Murdoch, uh, the editor of the Iris Murdoch Review, and um, also personal connection, having spent um, many years living in Ireland. And finally, I'm delighted um, that um, Gillian Dooley can be with us. Hello, Gillian. Hello, hello. Hello. Uh, Gillian's very well known in Iris Murdoch circles and indeed beyond, having edited or um, co-edited or written um, three books um, about Iris. Um, the most, uh, her most famous work, I suppose, is uh, From a Tiny Corner in the House of Fiction, um, which collected um, so many of Iris's um, interviews together but also uh, never mind about the bourgeois from 2014 and the most recent and wonderful uh, reading Iris Murdoch's Metaphysics as a Guide to Morals that she co-edited and that came out last year. Um, she's presented uh, keynotes on Murdoch at, yeah. at uh, conferences across Europe and um, one, of the, one of the highlights I think of last year's centenary was um, her, um, organi the organization of the centenary conference in Oxford. Um, that was in July and in, in March this year she organised um, a seminar and a concert in Adelaide where she's, uh, where she's based and she's currently writing a book on music and sound in Iris Murdoch's fiction um, which will come in today of course because um, music and sound is so important um, to the unicorn and to the red and the green. So welcome to you all. Ian I think we um, best start with you. Could you start with some biography, um, some historical background to Iris and t tell, us, um, tell us about her time in Ireland, really, really set the scene for the podcast. Okay. Um, of course, Iris never actually really lived in Ireland. Um, she, might be of, she might be of Ireland, but she was never in it. Uh, she left, she was taken away as a baby, never returned apart from visits to cousinages uh, and other people in, in Dublin and occasionally in the north of Ireland. So her Irishness as such is, is, a, is a contingent thing. Is it real at all? Um, uh, which is, might be a rather existential question, but one I think needs actually to be asked. Um, she had, in, in Peter Conradi's words, quote, a lifetime's investment in Irishness. And she satisfies uh, one of the recent and authoritative definitions in the Royal Irish Academy's Dictionary of Irish Biography, which says, born in Ireland with careers outside Ireland. So if that's the case, we've established that she's Irish, except what is Irish? We, we do not know. It's, a, it's like trying to pin Blamange to a wall, frankly. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm, I'm not sure that, that it has anything other than a sort of a frothiness. But it's what you believe you are. It's, I'm Irish because I believe I'm Irish. Um, it, it's almost a, a, a religious type definition. She described herself of Anglo-Irish parentage, or some copywriter did, um, appearing on dust jackets from, from 1961 on. That's a very curious description in many ways, because it, 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 it in one sense, gills the lily. Um, we, we imagine the term Anglo-Irish to um, encompass what are known generally as horse Protestants. In other words, people who had landed estates um, uh, and were of, effectively of the landed gentry. Murdoch's own family background was, was none of these things. Um, her, her father was, uh, was, was basically a former civil servant um, uh, in the military originally, um, and she was born in Blessington Street in Dublin. Now, anybody who knows Blessington Street in Dublin will know that it is seriously unfashionable. 
It is seriously unfashionable now, and it was seriously unfashionable in 1919. It was on the north side of, of the city, uh, what Elizabeth Bowen called in another context, terra incognita. And um, Protestants weren't found in large quantities there. Um, and if you look at the 1911 census, for instance, um, which, is, which is very revealing, Blessington Street is a melange of all sorts and types of people. Predominantly lower middle class, um, some working class, very few Protestants. Um, Protestants lived on the south side of Dublin and congregated in the more salubrious areas, as indeed Elizabeth Bowen's um, family did um, uh, in, in, in the early 20th century. So uh, her, her, her origins are in Dublin are not what you would call typical Protestant or what people think are typical Protestant. And again, her family background as such is Northern Irish rather than, rather than Southern. Uh, a melange of, of, of all sorts of people, um, Quakers, Elamites, and she always had a very strong connection and connectivity with the North of Ireland, which, some, uh, which probably goes quite far to explain why, um, when the troubles broke out in the late 1960s and early 1970s, um, she took a, a, a serious set against Ireland, mainly because I would imagine of the connectivity of her family uh, with the troubles and the fact that this must have fed into her perception of what Ireland actually was at the time. So um, the, 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 you're talking here about a, a person who, is, who has an imaginative concept of Ireland because she never practically experienced it. Um, if, if you look at, back to Bowen again, if you look at Elizabeth Bowen, um, Bowen was, was, uh, lived in Ireland. Um, Bowen had, had a, a double life, a suburban life in Dublin when she was a child uh, with her professional lawyer father but also um, a landed uh, life down in Bowen's Court in County Cork. So she straddled both of, both of these worlds. Mur Murdoch never really did. Um, and I think that if one is looking at Murdoch's sense of Irishness, you, I think one has to be aware that it is definitely an imagined sense of Irishness. Um, Conradi uh, said that it was a place that she could, that she could go back to. Um, that it, it was a sort of a refuge, it was a, it was a place to escape to. Uh, and maybe in some ways, um, uh, Murdoch, Murdoch's citizenship was a citizenship of the intellect rather than of the place. And, uh, and, but everybody does need a place. Um, and I think it's important sometimes to connect that to the way they write and what they think about themselves. And in Murdoch's case, that, that is precisely what it is. Ireland is a place of imagination, and she's very good at imagining it. Um, curiously enough, the, the, the novel that obviously would spring to mind in that regard would be The Unicorn, which, which, which is an imagined metaphysical, metaphorical novel. But curiously enough, in, in, in The Red and the Green, which is to all intents and purposes a historical novel, in that there, there is quite a lot of imagined landscapes and imagined people too, uh, because she doesn't, she, she doesn't conform everybody to the standard stereotypes. And, and to that extent, I think that reflects her view and her style of Irishness. Okay, I'll stop there for the moment. Is that okay? Yes, that's fine. I'm, I'm, I'm interested as, as well with these um, connections to her cousins and because um, she she would she would go back, wouldn't she, periodically to to visit, but also in later life, um, her connection to Elizabeth Bowen actually became really rather important to her, didn't it? It did. Um, she visited um, Bowen's court in County Cork uh, famously in, in in 1956, I think, um, at a point when she was beginning to wonder about the the relationship with John Bailey. Um, and, and it's quite interesting, there is a, a report of a conversation which she had with Elizabeth about, about her sense of identity, but it's actually to do with losing it in, in the context of marrying Bailey rather than of Irishness or a sense of place. Um, and, and to that extent, she is, um, she, 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 again, she is representing herself as a citizen of, um, dare I say it, nearly nowhere 
um, like uh, in Theresa May's famous phrase. Uh, but she, she's also, she, she's definitely a citizen of the mind, not, not, not of place. She can write about it, but one never gets the sense that she is as connected to the physical uh, uh, idea of Ireland as, for instance, Bowen was. Although Bowen spent as much time in England almost uh, as she ever did um, in Ireland. And yes. to that extent, the, 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 the differences are, are quite plain. So, Francis, to, uh, th thank you, Ian. I mean, that, that's, um, that really, I, I think, gives us a very good um, understanding of her early life and, and um, her thought on Ireland. Uh, Francis, I'd like to bring you in to talk a little bit about um, her development of some of these, uh, these Irish ideas and how they, how they fit into some of the novels. I'm interested in Ian saying everybody does need a place and that Iris might have seen herself as a citizen of nowhere. He worked for UNRWA, the United Nations Relief and Rehabilitation Organization, and had to do with displaced people. And I, she writes about displaced people in many, many of her novels. And I think her sense of connectedness came from not really belonging in England, but not really belonging in Ireland either. She was somewhere between the two. In Ireland, she stuck out as an outsider, but in England, she was always Irish. And her particularly family, family situation seems to have been unusual in that the Irish people that I know, and I, I know a lot in, in England, um, do form their own groups. You have the London Irish, you have the Liverpool Irish. You know, there, there is a, a culture within a culture going on. And yet her parents, with whom she said she lived in a perfect trinity of love, appear to have been very, very disconnected from everyone around them. She doesn't seem to have been part of any kind of London Irish circle. And that this might have been important to her is suggested by the fact that at Oxford she became part of the Irish um, society, the Irish club, she was secretary, with posters with her name on. It wasn't something she'd experienced really as a child, this sense of belonging to an Irish community within England. So it was quite a lonely place, I think, for her, very much a place of nowhere. And um, gave her this immense sympathy with the refugee, with the displaced person, and a sense of understanding that condition. I have a slightly odd personal link, as Miles said at the beginning, in that I, I'm English, fully English, born in London, and yet I lived in Ireland for 24 years of my life, very formative 24 years of my life. My children were born there, and it was um, a most wonderful time. I love Ireland, I love the Irish people, I love the landscapes. I wrote to Irish Murdoch from Donegal when I was living there and sent her a stone that I'd found on the beach. And I have letters back from her loving this magical stone that she wrote in capital letters. And those letters are now in the archives. And then I lived in County Clare, very near the Burren, which is of course the Scarron in the Unicorn. And when you go out on that landscape, you really understand the Unicorn. I think you have to go and experience that wild landscape and those cliffs and this sense that you will only see one car in a day, but that car will kill you. It is the most amazing <laughs> landscape, it really is. But I want to think a little bit about how Ireland has treated um, Iris, because she, hasn't been accepted in the way that some of the male writers, um, Beckett and um, Joyce, who lived a great deal of their lives outside Ireland, as an Irish writer, in a quite hurtful way, I think. Um, I did do some research on this years ago when I was giving conferences, uh, conference papers at conferences at the University of Limerick, and that was an awkward place to be, a very Chinese box place to be. As an English woman living in Ireland, talking about an Irish woman who lived in England in an Irish university surrounded by Irish people, I was always afraid I would somehow tread on toes and get things wrong. It was um, quite a delicate uh, place to be. But Margot Gale Backus, who wrote The Gothic Family Romance in 1999 and wrote about Iris's books in that, within that study, um, said something very striking. that Murdoch, an Anglo-Irish woman with an international reputation as a British author, has not been treated as a national icon worthy of critical reclamation. Instead, Murdoch's writing is treated as a pollutant against which the Irish canon must be protected. And those are strong words. Strong. Yeah, and there's a reference work in which um, Ian mentioned Elizabeth Bowen, and of course there's many parallels here, but there's a reference work about Irish literature in which Bowen's name is included and then ruled out crossed through, put sort of sous rature. Um, she, is, she is under erasure as an Irish writer. And yet Iris 
quite often, it is very difficult, there's Iris and Irish, you get them wrong. Um, she just doesn't appear quite often. For example, the Cambridge Companion to the Irish novel, which came out in 2006, Bowen features in that, but Murdoch isn't even indexed, despite the fact that there are sections on the Big House novel, the English novel, and Gothic fiction. But she's not there, she's absent, made invisible, made not to exist, again, a citizen of nowhere. Um, she really vanishes from sight. And she yet, yet, despite this, she had a very, very strong sense of Irish identity. And most of my quotations here come from Gillian's marvellous book of essays, Tiny Corner in the House of Fiction. In 1968, she said, I feel Anglo-Irish. I feel a very emotional attachment to Ireland of a rather obscure, half annoyed kind. And then in 78, a decade later, she said, I'm of course very conscious of myself as Irish. I'm a Protestant and I come from both sides of the border and the unhappiness of Ireland is something which I think about all the time. And she also said, my Irishness is Anglo-Irishness in a very strict sense. I think this is a very special way of being Irish. People sometimes say to me rudely, oh, you're not Irish at all, but of course I'm Irish. I'm profoundly Irish and I've been conscious of this all my life. So it was deep rooted in her. And I think possibly unconsciously, possibly ingenuously, she allowed it to be thought that she was Anglo-Irish in the way that Bowen is. She liked the association with Bowen's court. As Ian said, that was incredibly important to her personally. It was Bowen showing her that she could be an independent woman and a novelist in her marriage to Alan Cameron, who supported her, that made her unafraid to marry John Bailey. She didn't think she'd disappear if she married John Bailey. She could go on being herself. That was an incredibly important influence. And there's a wonderful photograph of her at dinner in the beautiful dining room at Burns Court, everybody in lovely evening clothes, Iris looking quite incredibly soigné, which is rare for her in photographs, and her and Elizabeth sitting around this grand dining room table. And I think she loved to see herself in that setting, although as Ian's correctly said, she's not really from that world at all. Um, we can go on to the novels, but there's a passage I'd like to read out a bit later from a, not one of the Irish, Irish novels that I think says a lot about how she came to feel about being Irish, but maybe you'd rather I left that for the time being? Yes, maybe. I'm, I'm, I'm interested actually to, uh, to think about this connection um, to um, Irish writing, because of course last year um, for her centenary, it seemed very much that she was now being gradually being accepted. I know Ian wrote um, a very good piece for the Irish Times about uh, about Iris and, and um, in, in fact there were many many pieces that came out for centenary in Ireland. I think and, it is uh, changing, yes. Yeah and, um, and and lovely to see the um, the, the, the plaque that's gone out um, in Blessington Street to uh, to recognise her as an author who from from that area. I think it was, it was great to see that as well when I uh, when I visited recently. That really is a huge move and, and a sign that Ireland is beginning to accept her as a daughter and as um, a writer to be proud of. The strange thing is that it, she, now you see her, now you don't. She sort of comes and goes and is visible and invisible. Because the same year that she was not in the Cambridge Companion to the Irish novel, she was included in the Oxford Companion to Irish literature and in the Dictionary of Irish Philosophers. So sometimes she's there, sometimes she's not. It's, it's a, quite it, curious. It's a, it's a strange one, isn't it? And of course, in, even in even in her very first novel, in Under the Net, we we have that that very strong link to Ireland and indeed to um, to exile in a certain. That's way. one of the things I wanted to say that. Um, I don't think it's any accident that her very first protagonist, the front runner of her six first-person male narrators, in whose voice she chose to make her fictional debut, is Irish. Yes, yeah. Jake, yeah. who's the hero or anti-hero of Under the Net, is acutely aware of his role as the visitor, the disinherited Anglo-Irishman who can't go home again. Those are Gerstenberger's words about him. Jake lives in Paris or London, but never forgets that he doesn't belong to either. Neither, though, does he belong to Ireland and the amusing throwaway tone in which he informs the reader of his nationality seems to me to mask a hurt, which may be that of his creator, Iris, as well. He says, my name is James Donoghue, but you needn't bother about that, as I was only in Dublin once on a whiskey blind and saw daylight only twice, when they let me out of Stall Street Police Station, and then when Finn put me on the boat for Holyhead. You needn't bother about that, yet he and Murdoch need to flag up is Irish right yes. from the beginning. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, it's an interesting one. Gillian, I'd, I'd, I'd like to come to you now because you've um, indeed co-authored co with, with Francis quite recently 
um, a, quite a, a long, um, de very detailed um, journal article about, um, about her Irishness. And, and of course, you're also thinking about um, particular elements of Irish culture within these novels as well, aren't you, particularly singing? Um, yes, uh, and, and um, the sort of accents and, and um, you know, the sounds of the sounds of the novels. Um, and so, you know, what I'd, I'd, I'd like to start with is, is going back to the story, something special. Um, and um, I mean, the interesting thing about the, the story, something special is it was written around the same time as Un Under the Net was published. But it's really a bit hard to imagine two, two more different narratives in a way. Um, in March 1954, Murdoch visited Ireland and noted in her diary her only partly fabricated feeling of being at home there. Only partly fabricated. Um, on returning home to Oxford, she wrote this story, something special, her only her sole excursion into the short story form. And it's possible to see and hear in this uh, very unhappy story and an, un, an imagined alternative life that would have, been, would have made being at home in Ireland a far, a far from desirable state of affairs. Um, and so although both these early works, as, as Francis has just said, um, Under the Net also is infused with Irishness, they, they don't have much else in common. Under the Net is, of course, set in London, narrated in the first person by the witty, footloose intellectual, Jake Donoghue, who doesn't, spe who doesn't specifically admit to being Irish, but has an Irish name and a distant Irish cousin. Um, something special is set in Dublin, narrated in the third person, but focalised through a restless, trapped young Irish woman, Yvonne Geary. One thing Jake and Yvonne have in common is poverty. Uh, but Jake has limitless opportunities if he will only apply himself while Yvonne's choices amount to staying in the suburban stationery shop kept by her mother and uncle or the spectre of marriage to Sam Goldman, who to her is nothing special. Under the nets of picaresque and fresh air sort of novel, Jake's adrift, but he's free. Something special is claustrophobic. Uh, Yvonne says, can't I live my life as I please since it's the only thing I have? What a, oh, that's such a, such a painful sentence, isn't it? Yes, um, absolutely. Um, the implied answer to her question is loud and clear, is no. The story ends in, in the bed she shares with her mother as she declares she will marry Sam, burying her face deep in her pillow so deep that her mother shouldn't be able to hear that she was starting to cry. Um, and, and really, of all of Murdoch's many trapped and defeated female characters, I think Yvonne is perhaps one of the most depressing and distressing. Um, and all that Yvonne has to set against this living death of her suffocating world is her voice. The word special keeps, keeps coming back through the dialogue. The something special that she yearns for, but which is out of her reach, the nothing special she settles for in the end. Her mother and uncle nag her to accept Sam. Sensible people, her uncle says, marry because they want to be in the married state and not because of the feelings they have in their breasts. Um, and in answer to these dreary platitudes, Yvonne can either say nothing or utter ineffectual things like, you know, uh, in answer to her uncle, who says, she's cross again. Yvonne says, who's she? She's the cat. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, she, she's just, she's sort of got no, she's got nowhere to go. Um, exclamation mark. She's always exclaiming, but she's, it's always sort of ineffectual. Um, and, but the accents define the characters in this story. Her mother, Yvonne, her mother and her uncle all speak uh, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I'm just, I'm just sort of, sort of listening to this. Uh, they, they all seem to speak with a Dublin lilt. Um, the older characters, still talking about her in her presence, in the third person, taunt her by reminding of her of a former boyfriend. 
And although my grandfather, my grandparents were Irish, three of them were anyway, and um, my, my great-grandfather went to um, Trinity College, Dublin, um, I have no Irish <laughs> accent, so I'm, I, I can't do this in, in the proper Irish accent, but it comes through, I think, even in, in an Australian accent. She's still stuck on the English lad, said her mother. The tall fellow, Tony Thingamy, was his name. I am not, said Yvonne. Good riddance to bad rubbish. I could not abide his voice, said her uncle. He had his mouth all pressed up when he talked, like a man was acting in a play. Um, this Englishman who'd brought Yvonne flowers and even sang to her, and who, according to her mother, was a jaunty boy and a fine slim thing with some pretty ways to him isn't mentioned again, but the vehement defensiveness of Yvonne's response is perhaps a clue to her discontent. So I, I just think these, um, this, these, the dialogue is, is really telling in this novel, as it so often, of course, is in, in Murdoch. There's a lot of dialogue without any commentary in this story. Um, and the, the, the mother and uncle reveal their prejudices and attitudes in their dialogue. Um, you know, there's all these awful things. And then there's the sanctimonious Christmas card man who kind of just quotes hymns at them and that sort of thing. Um, and so um, Sam, this poor, this poor young man who's trying to, for some reason, is trying to court Yvonne, um, He's very polite and he's very tentative and he seems to speak mainly in a kind of standard English, unlike the rest of the, 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 um, the characters. So, um, you know, I, I've just sort of listening to the, listening to the story, I, I, I find a lot, of, a lot to hear about the Irishness of the story. Um, it, it, it's... Um... Rereading it recently, um, I think it's the, the it, it's so claustrophobic. That's yeah. that that short story. It's it's you know if you think think about Murdoch's other um, works of the same same period, whether it be you say under the net or flight of the enchanted, they're much more. Although they are you know very very much London novels, and, and this is a, obviously a Dublin short story, they still feel they've got a lot more air around them. That there's a lot yeah. more. There's a lot more. There's traveling mm. here. As you say, Yvonne is it's it's written in such a such a way that it's sort of, Yvonne is sort of doubly entrapped within that story. Mm. It's interesting that it was published at the, about the same time that the Sandcastle was published, and the Sandcastle is quite a claustrophobic novel in in many ways. Yes, isn't it, it is. Yeah, yeah, I'd agree with so, that. So, um, you know, that well, that's I don't, I don't know if there's anything to be said about that, but um, that's just one thing I noticed. Yeah, yeah. And, and it's interesting that, 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 as you say, it's her only short story and she never, un, unlike someone like Elizabeth Bowen, she never returns to that kind that form. Mm. It's as if she needs the expansive form of the novel to actually deal yeah. with these major ideas that she's always wanting to talk about. And if, you know, yeah. in, in some regards, perhaps something special is an experiment that she didn't want to return to. And I suppose yeah. The, yeah. the same sort of thing could be said, Ian, about her only historical novel, The Red and the Green. And I think it... Um, interesting to also note the red and the green is the only novel that she was uh, disappointed in later life that she'd actually written it and she says that she you know she was far too um, uh, sympathetic to the Republican cause you, what do you what do you think about that novel is it is it close to historical reality I, I, I know that obviously Murdoch did quite a lot of research for this novel unlike some unlike most of her others but does it chime with you as a as a useful work to read as a, as a historical novel about that particular time? Yes, um, it is unusual in many respects, not, not, least of, uh, not least as to how it opens, because it doesn't open with the usual sort of bang, um, noisy, Republican, violence, rebellion stuff. Um, it, it focuses on the other side, if you like. And again, in that novel, she balances the, uh, the standard references and the standard idea of Irish identity uh, in 1916, the Republicans and so on and so forth, against um, an Anglo-Irishman who doesn't quite know where he is or what he's actually doing and who hates horses as well, which is, which is <laughs> no bad thing. Um, but I like to think that the red and the green is a good antidote uh, to a lot of the um, 
literature which appeared in 1966. Incidentally, uh, Murdoch, with typical efficiency, produced the novel a year before the uh, uh, 50th anniversary of the, the Rising, whereas my experience with Irish, his, lazy Irish historians and others were that they tended to produce stuff about 1966, about three or four years later. Um, <laughs> she, 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 she got in on the market there. The, the, the novel was not very well received in Ireland at the time, but then it wouldn't have been. Interesting. Uh, it has it, it actually worn better um, with age, in my view, as, as a much more balanced approach. If you look at the reaction and the way that the centenary of the rebellion was, uh, was, was commemorated in, in, uh, uh, in 2016, um, Murdoch's Red and the Green fits much more easily into the modern idea of what Irish identity is than it would have 50 years previously. And to that extent, looking at it purely from a, his, from a historian's angle, it is more valuable now as a measure of atmosphere and tone uh, that probably was more representative of how it actually was in, 19, uh, in 1916 than the, the uh, novels and the history that was produced in 1966, which tended to be rather, rather one-sided. So do you think then that um, Murdoch's kind of um, dismissal of the novel later and, and her sort of her worries that she was far too sympathetic to, the, to republicanism are actually unfounded? Yes, I think so. Uh, I mean, her reaction uh, to what she wrote was obviously coloured by what happened very shortly after 1966, particularly, obviously, in the north of Ireland. Uh, you know, three, three years later, effectively, uh, a 30-year violent um, uh, period opens out and keeps going. And Murdoch had serious difficulties coping with that in the sense of her, her own background and her, her relations in the North and so on and so forth. So I could see why it became possibly something of a rejected child for a while. But I think it's back, it, it, it is now, it now finds its place or should find its place in the canon of history and literature which marked the 50th anniversary of the rising and in a much more balanced way. Um, historians in 1966, uh, the few historians in 1966 who questioned the motivation and the morality of the rising were practically run out of town. Um, uh, in 2016, there were a lot more of, there are a lot more questioning voices and the, the Murdoch's novel that fits better into 2016 than it ever did into 1965 and 1966, in my view. And that's that's fascinating, isn't it? Because of course she is taking, you know, a, a lead from other historical novels. She's you know she's obviously um, drawing on Yeats as well. There's uh, there's quite a lot going on in that novel, and you, and you can see why it, it took her, I think, quite you know a, a good 18 months to research this novel. Unlike some of the others, which she would as she. As she Quite often said she'd finish one novel and then half an hour later start another. This this, this one, I think, it's very close to to her heart in a certain sense, and, and perhaps her rejection, as you say, is connected to historical events post post sixty six, um, which is fasc fascinating for me. Thinking thinking about her engage, engaging in history in in that particular sense. Francis, is this also something that you're? Yes, I'd like to chip in here. Yeah, I thought you would. Um, I'm very interested by Ian commenting that um, the Red and the Green came out with the 50th anniversary of the Rising. I think this is something she was very aware of. And Gillian and I, in our essay, make a case for her really putting forward a bid to be part of this, to be part of Irish history, to have her work linked with it. And the connections that I found when I was writing a paper again for the University of Limerick were to do with Yeats who of course wrote the famous Easter Rising, um, Easter 1916 Rising poem. Mm. And it's very subtle. Her allusions are very subtle. They're easy to miss. But there are two references to Yeats in the Red and the Green. The first reference opens chapter two, which in fact Conradi called the seminar on the history of Ireland. Hilda asks, what's on at the Abbey? Christopher answers, some stuff by W.B. Yeats. Her reaction is, the Countess Kathleen man. I don't think we feel strong enough for that, do we? And The Countess Kathleen is, of course, the play that made Yeats ask in his verse, did that play of mine send out certain men the English shot? 
the men of the Easter Rising. And the second reference closes the novel and these framing references make it clear that Murdoch's primary focus in the red and the green, despite all the sexual shenanigans and complications of the family that go on, is the historical event. Mm -hmm. So in the end of the novel, when Francis is looking back on um, what happened, you've got two words and they're a page apart, they're not together. Terrible and beauty. Francis is talking to her younger sons who've grown up in England about the past and she's trying to explain it with great difficulty. She says, it was a terrible business. They were inconceivably brave men. Pierce, Connolly, McDonough, McBurnock, McBride. They had a beauty which could not be eclipsed or rivaled. The terrible and beauty are a page apart in the novel, but they ring in the ear of a reader of Yeats, mm, the reminder yes, of that yes. poem. And I think this is her bid, and I could develop this at far greater length than we have time for here to be included in the commemoration of the Easter Rising, to be included in the history of her own country. That she, as Ian said, you know, her, her feelings about it became very, very difficult indeed. And later on, I'll, I'll talk more about that. Um, but I think at that point, she really wanted to, to follow in this tradition and to, to make her mark on, on the, the commemoration of Irish history here. Mm. I yeah. say all this as an English woman, but I'm always afraid of, you know, um, missing nuances and missing uh, subtleties. Sure, and and um, Gillian, she she in in interview and indeed in private letters as well, she notes her changing feelings towards Ireland, doesn't she? And I think the red and the green is kind of this this marker in '66, and obviously later into the '70s and '80s, she begins to feel much more ambivalent um, towards towards Ireland. Yeah, sure, she does. Um, although you know there are there are things in the letters where you know somebody's written to her and said I, I really enjoyed reading red and red and the green and she'd write back to them saying oh thank you so much you know I'd, um you know that uh, other people haven't enjoyed it so much so i'm very she was, she was very gratified by that i suppose as one would be um i mean i'm quite interested of course my what i'm looking at particularly at the moment in, in the novels is, is the places of, place of music and sound. And, sure. and, and music's incredibly important in the Red and the Green. Um, it's, and it's always um, one, of the, one on one side or another. You know, there's the, um, I think uh, Andrew says, um, that Andrew Chase White says at one stage, it's, you know, it's always a matter of choosing one dreadful vulgarity over another or something like that you know it's just <laughs> it's um you know it's just the 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 awful hymns that the anglicans sing versus the 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 the, the you know the jingoistic um uh kind of nationalist songs um there's a lot of references to songs which uh, by thomas davis the 18th 19th century irish patriot um, and poet, and that's a lot. That's often a bone of contention between Patrick and Cathal, his younger brother, um, where Cathal is singing songs like "Oh for a steed, a rushing steed," and and you know, uh, sure twas for this Lord Edward died, and wolf tones sunk serene because they could not bear to leave the red above the green, and all those sort of things. And Pat. You know, argues with him and says, don't be stupid, dying isn't thinking serene, bad poetry lies. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of incidental music yeah. happening it, and it's always emblematic of one side or another. So she, she sort of, she, it, it, she uses music to, 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 to um, you know, to, to uh, animate both the, the both sides of the of the of the of the um, struggle. I was going to say it, it's it's not there to ju just enhance the atmosphere of Ireland. It's it's there for a particular no. purpose in the novel, isn't it? Absolutely, absolutely. Yes, that's right. Um, and you know, Hilda, the uh, Andrew's mother. You know, she um, she's definitely on the Anglo side. You know, she doesn't want to go to see the Yates and. She sings uh, when I survey the wondrous cross, and, and um, you know, and um, whereas her brother, you know, Barnabas, the Catholic convert, 
is, is really moved and excited and, 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 and quite upset by the, the, the Catholic music, the, 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 the church music he hears. So, you know, these are, the music is, 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 is a thread throughout the whole novel. Yeah. And, um, and I think we could say the same for um, The Unicorn as well. Now, obviously, quite, quite a very different novel. Um, you know, a, a kind of a, a gothic fantasy in, in some regards, drawing on the fairy tale tradition and um, Irish folklore, and um, and so so much. You know, the, the, also the big house novel that, of, of Ireland that uh, that Bohm was writing. But again, we we see you know musical motifs coming through, don't we? We do, um, and uh, you know, I'm I'm fascinated by this song, which is right absolutely in the centre of this novel. It, it you know, if you if you if you go to the right, the middle page of this novel, there's this, this song, The Fuchsia Tree, um, which is sung by Dennis, um, and which mean you know, Hannah has this sort of terrible reaction to it, screams and falls down in her face, and it's never explained why. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 it's just one of those mysteries that, that um, I think she loves to leave a mystery, and I, and I don't like pinning mysteries down. I like, you know, sort of working around them and trying to 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 see what they might mean. But um, I, I don't think she was she was going to pin them down either. She wasn't going to say, well, you know, Hannah Hannah fainted because blah blah blah. But um, but this uh, the fuchsia tree, you know, it's uh, it's actually a Manx ballad rather than an Irish ballad. Interesting. Um, yeah. But there, there's, you know, there's a musical evening that where, where that song is sung. And before that song is sung, there is um, other music, which is um, like the, um, the, you've got the, the black maids, the black Irish maids at, um, at the Gay's Castle. And then you've got the red-headed um, servants at um, Riders. So there's this, you know, there's this sort of, um, interesting um, historical background to the Black Irish versus the Red Irish or the Red Red-headed Irish. Um, so you know, this song is about a blackbird. Is 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 the Black Irish something to do with the blackbird? You know, all these all these fascinating little hints. Yeah. But uh, you know, but a bit like Yeats in the Red and the Green. You know, she doesn't actually come out and say say that she just leaves these lovely hints for us to um to us to bear you know delve into yeah it, 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 as you say you can read it for the story but it's also you know she leaves these clues doesn't she dust about for the attentive reader in all of her fiction the end mm. um you know or, or whether there are sort of ref references to philosophy you don't need to know what they're really about to enjoy the story um yeah. as examples yeah. but see, you you can you know look that little bit deeper of course as, as we're we're interested in doing on the podcast and thinking mm. about you know what what do they mean and what what are these references doing and i know you've done a, a lot of um work on that regarding the music which I, I'd, I'd like to come back to in a minute but ian i want to think a little bit about this this change um because the the you couldn't in in, in some regards have two almost polar opposite irish novels couldn't you the irish gothic of the of the unicorn the and the and the historical novel of the red and the green do you think she's um do you think the, the unicorn fits well into the Irish Gothic? Or do you, th do you just think you just see it as a kind of experimenting with a different sort of form here? Uh, that, that's a tricky one. I, th I think the answer, um, classic um, condition, is, is that in fact it's both. Um, it, it both fits in and doesn't fit in um, the unicorn. I mean, the, 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 God, the Irish Gothic novel has a, has a long and uh, dishonourable history. Going, <laughs> Going right back to the 18th century, um, and um, so she 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 fits she fits it in very very carefully there. But what I find interesting about the unicorn, though, is again it's like um, something special. It's full of it's full of signalling and it's full of reference, which speaks to people who can hear who who are on the wavelength and who can hear it. Um, I. I'm probably reading far too much into it, but I'm a Southern Irish Protestant myself, and we have spent we spend a lot of time uh, reading signals uh, because we have to, 
um, to navigate our way through the, the population in which we find ourselves, um, we have to be very careful sometimes in what we say, but we also have a coded Freemasonry of language, which allows us to communicate with, with, with each other in a, in, a, in a particular way. And you can, you can see that certainly in, in the unicorn. Um, uh, there's, there's quite a lot of the idea of, to get back to the original point I made, the idea of the, of, of the Southern Irish Protestant as really being hardly a citizen of anywhere. Um, let, let's look at the, for instance, the, the unmapped bog in which, um, in which the, the Englishman uh, Effingham, which of course is, is uh, Iris's grandfather's name, um, uh, he, he finds himself in this unmapped bog, if you like. And I sometimes see that Southern Protestants particularly feel sometimes they are in an unmapped bog. They're not quite sure where they're going and they're not quite sure why they should be there in the first place. Because whether you like it or not, you're an outsider in, yeah. in a country. Um, you know, we are fish um, swimming in air, so to speak, and we're trying to breathe the, the things that, the, that other people can. Edna Longley said in uh, 1989 that while Catholics are born Irish, uh, Protestants have to work their passage to Irishness. And in many cases, I see or read into these Irish -y novels and the short story. Iris actually working on that basis. She's looking for an Irishness, if you like, and she hasn't quite got there. But she she is using the novel and the short story to explore and find her way towards a sense of Irishness that will make her comfortable. Um, could you say a little bit more about this 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 um, use of um, Southern Irish Protestant language? I mean that that fascinates me. And you, you think that I, Iris is doing the same? Oh yes. Um, <laughs> some something special uh, would be read entirely differently by a, a Dunleary Catholic, as distinct from a Kingstown Protestant. So <laughs> they're living in the same town, but with two different names. And my, my own grandfather uh, used uh, the term Kingstown uh, until 1966 when he died. Uh, although the town's name had officially been changed to Dunleary in 1922. So there, there's all that sort of coded Freemasonry that you see going on with with, with, with Southern Protestants. It's, the, it, it's simply a form of navigation and mm. it's a form of identification. Um, where you don't have um, vi visual signs of difference, i.e. things like skin color, or as somebody used to say, the size of your feet, you have to rely on language to, to, to mark out the, the, the code out, which will allow you to say things to other people that you would not say to, even other people, if you know what I mean. So you have to be very careful about language. And I see, in, particularly in, so, in, in something special, there is an entire Protestant um, uh, uh, itinerary and landscape, which would not have been entirely visible to Catholics, but it would be entirely visible to, to, to Protestants. She navigates through, through Kingstown, by, by reference to Protestant places like the Mariner's Church, which yes, is an Anglican church, or Ross's Hotel. Um, if you lived in, in, in that, you know that Ross's Hotel was a Protestant hotel. Uh, it, it wasn't a Catholic one. So there's these navigation points all around the story, which allows a Protestant to navigate around it in a different way to a Catholic. So you, you, can, you can read it in two different ways, depending on which tribe you come from. Well, that, that's wonderful. I mean, I, I, I have never thought about it in, 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 that, in that way. And um, I, I, I want to bring Francis in to comment on that, because obviously, Francis, you, you, um, you, you, you lived in Southern Ireland. Um, and is this also something that, that you picked up on, this, this idea of the, the, the dual, dual meanings of language and something special, and perhaps in the other novels as well? I can't say I did, Miles. No, I'm not Irish and I lived there very much as an outsider. I always loved um, Larkin's words in his poem because he was librarian at Queen's. Interestingly, Edna Longley was the supervisor of my first attempt at thesis on Iris Murdoch. But, um, Larkin's a uh, librarian at Queen's and he wrote this wonderful poem about his time there. And he loved being there because he felt an outsider and there was a special kind of acceptance of the outsider. And when he returned to England, he said, 
here, no elsewhere underwrites my existence. And I found that a marvellous phrase. And always in Ireland, I felt there was an elsewhere that underwrites my existence. Back in England, um, I'm more expected to conform with... Um, I, I was bound to be odd in Ireland. I was English, I was mad, and that, that was fine. And uh, it went down very well. In England, I just don't quite fit in, so that's quite different. Mm. And this, this encoding, though, is, 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 is fascinating, because I think we get the, the same kind of... Um, the same kind of sort of feeling with as, as we as we move through the unicorn of Marion Taylor as well that she's trying to um, decode the kind of the the, the culture of the, this the, uh, of this landscape but also the houses I, I don't disagree um it, it's quite interesting at the beginning of 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 the of the unicorn um the first question that that Marion Taylor is asked is what is your religion child and that that actually is the is is the marker for as it were starting the enigma code machine working uh, and after that you then have to you have to read the novel uh, or you can you don't have to but you can read the novel in in, in, in those series of, of codes but but the houses the houses in the unicorn are the same sort of houses that you see uh, and read of in, in in a lot of bones works so the houses are sentient beings and um, and above all, they are observers. Uh, uh, they can be benign observers or they can be malign ones. But there's a sense of being uh, in the unicorn of houses watching people. Mm. Whether, they're watch whether they're watching them as protectors or watching them um, because they're snipers, as it were, is, is, is a moot point. Um, uh, but Bowen uh, adopts exactly the same type of, of, of modus operandi when she's dealing with houses um, in many cases. She personalizes them and she uses them as essential characters in the, uh, in the particular stories that she, she, she's writing. And, and to that extent, both Murdoch and Bowen are, are doing something which is quite Protestant in the sense that Protestants in Southern Ireland are always aware, or at least they think they are aware of being watched, even if they aren't. It's a form of super sensitivity. And if you're being watched by a house, it's the same as being watched by the Catholic population around you. And you don't step out of line. The interesting things about the Scarron or, or the Burren, as we call it, is it's, it's a karst landscape. So it's, it's formed of a series of sort of limestone flags, if you like. But the point about it is that it, everything vanishes down between the cracks. There, there, water goes down, there's very little plant life, um, it's very easy to, to, to vanish down, down the cracks. And in many cases, the unicorn, Marion Taylor in the unicorn is trying to keep her head above the cracks, if you like, without, you know, she, she's trying to resist being dragged down and falling down and, and being subsumed into that sort of, as it were, a sort of mystical, um, mystical landscape. And I think it, that to that extent that the idea of the Scarron stroke burn works extremely well in the unicorn. Mm, yes, I think it does that uh, to, as a, uh, a wonderful place to, to, to set a, this, uh, this gothic novel. Gillian, I'd like to bring you in because I think, I'm, I'm sure, um, I think you've got some, uh, some, some thoughts on, on, on this as well. Um, the thing that interests me, well, well, you know, many things interest me about the unicorn, but, um, but one thing is, that, of course, that the, as, as we've pointed out, that both the the focalising characters, both the points of view point of view characters, are English, are from mm. outside, and and they they don't, and they're trying to, as, as Ian said, they're trying to read this unfamiliar landscape. They're trying to feel feel their way around, and and um, and it just makes it more mysterious, doesn't it? And, and perhaps that's a it's a gothic sort of. Um, strategy of, of the gothic novelist um, but they but they never know quite what the right thing to do what's the right thing to do you know they never know quite what the rules are they never learn the rules um, and um, and you know, this this song is 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 puzzling to them as, as it is to us you know and we never find out what the what the answer of that of that is um, but I'm interested in the in this um, Thing about the black Irish and the and the red-headed Irish is that a is that a Protestant Catholic thing or is it a um, is it a um, 
is that something else? I mean, is that a... Mm, I, I wouldn't have I wouldn't have said so. Um, may, maybe Irish should have should have uh, entitled the, the the novel the Red and the Black in that case, but <laughs> it, it 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 isn't particularly. Um, Red-haired Irish are generally seen as people who would come more from the sort of what you would call traveller Roma tradition. Um, Black-haired Irish would be would not have any particular um, affiliation, as it were, with with any particular ethnic or, or tribal group. Oh. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't read a huge amount of significance into it. Oh. And it was, yeah. with somebody with somebody with my uh, follically challenged as I am, neither red nor black is of particular uh, particular relevance. Well, it's interesting because uh, Mike, I remember one of my cousins um, descended also from the same Irish. Uh, thought you know that, that for some reason we had we had black Irish ancestry big, and it came from the Spanish you know the Spanish who came on shore from the Armada you know the, the, these sort of uh, um, legends that you hear but um, I don't know if there's any any basis in the historical basis in that at all. <laughs> I also wonder whether she didn't choose the red and the black because Stendhal's already used it in the 19th century for his famous <laughs> novel. So. I wasn't going to say that. Yeah, no, I think it's worth, worth I'm, Iris, would, I'm sure, would have read it and, um, and perhaps that's why she's, she's, she's gone for the red and the green. Well, as we come towards the end of our time together, it's gone, gone very quickly. It's been fascinating. I'd just like to uh, ask you each for um, some, you know, a, a few minutes of reflection. Um, Francis, should we, should we start with yes. you? Yes, please. Um, I wanted to go back to what I said earlier, but I don't think it's in the Irish novels that um, Murdoch really expressed her sense of frustration and her pain at the whole situation that, as Ian said, developed after she published The Red and the Green, the 30 years of the troubles and all the uh, appalling things that went on. It's, it comes more in a novel called The Philosopher's Pupil, which wasn't published until 1983 in which there's a character called Emmanuel Scarlett Taylor. He's always known as Emma. And um, he's Irish, and he's ambivalent about that, as, as Iris herself was. And the description that she gives of Emma's background and his emotional relationship to his Irish national identity seems to me to be the closest thing to self-disclosure that she ever offers on the subject. So I'd like to read a little portion of that. Yes, do. Scarlett Taylor was born in County Wicklow, between the mountains and the sea. His father's ancestors had been landowners in the west of Ireland, but his father and grandfather were Dublin lawyers. His mother came from Ulster, County Down, where her ancestors had been sheep farmers. Both sides of the family were Protestants and horsemen. Emma was an only child. His father died when he was 12 and his mother went to live in Brussels. He liked Brussels. He liked London too, and foresaw his future as a Londoner. He hated, with all his heart and soul, Ireland, the Irish, and himself. Dr. Johnson said that when a man says his heart bleeds for his country, he experiences no uncomfortable sensation. With Emma, it was otherwise. It mattered little to him as a child that his great-grandfather's house had been burnt by the rebels. He had admired the men of 1916 and the fight for Ireland's freedom, Ireland, indeed, had made him an historian. Emma had been brought up as a vague Anglican. He'd never been anti-Catholic. He envied the ritual. He loved the Latin mass. He approved of the full churches. Religion was history. History taught tolerance. Then the shooting started. Emma watched the slaughter take place in the gratuitous, untimely cause of a united Ireland. He saw with unutterable grief the emergence of Protestant murderers as vile as their foes. He felt guilt and misery and rage. The little town near his mother's family house was blown apart by a bomb placed in the sad little main street with its white houses and its six pubs. Protestants and Catholics died together. For the first occasion in his own lifetime, Emma had a close-up view of human wickedness. And in his very private, confused self-rage, he rejected his Irishness. He tore it to shreds in sick, futile anger, sometimes scarcely knowing what it was he detested most in the stew of hatred for which he so much despised himself. 
He never mentioned Irish matters to his mother, and she never spoke of Ireland either. When their native land was named by others, he saw on her face the same frozen look which he felt on his own. He had no country. He envied his English friend Tom, who had no sense of nationality and didn't seem to need one. Yet when in his mind, Emma tried to resolve himself into being English, it was impossible. He was utterly, utterly not English. When people said, for his voice damnably betrayed him, you're Irish? And he replied, Anglo-Irish. And they said, oh, so you're not real Irish. Scarlett Taylor smiled faintly and said nothing. And there are very strong links in this passage with Murdoch's own life and verbal echoes from her statements and interviews, which I read earlier. So I think it's plain that there's no lack in Murdoch of emotional response and seriousness of feeling to the situation. And this is where she, to me, most fully expresses it. Yes, what a beautiful passage that is. And it's interesting that that's 83, isn't it? Because at, at that point, I think uh, um, amb ambivalence towards and, 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 and problematic relationship with Ireland is, is comes through. It's interesting that, of course, in 85, um, Trinity um, College Dublin gives her an honorary degree. And from that point on, it seems that she becomes a little bit more um, comfortable with, um, with her Anglo-Irish roots. And uh, it kind of bring, brings her back, I think, a little bit. Um, but, th but thank you. G Gillian. Um, yes, um, well, that, that's, that's a fascinating passage. I mean, Emma, Emma Scarlett-Taylor is, is, is a very interesting character to me because he's the only singer who, has a, who, who is a, a vocalising character in, in all of Iris's novels. And he's a serious singer, but a very conflicted between singing and being a historian. Um, and I must admit, I hadn't really, I mean, I knew, of course, that he was, had the Irish background, but I hadn't really taken that in. So that's wonderful. But um, I, I, was, um, I, I was also drawn back by that, that, um, that passage that Francis read to what uh, Pat Dumay right, says in um, The Red and the Green, uh, which is, is almost as if in that passage that, uh, that where Emma is talk, thinking about his Irishness, we come back to, to Pat who's saying, um, you know, Pat had no illusions about the, either the difficulty or the sheer ugliness of the kind of struggle he was engaged in. He would have liked a cleaner, straighter fight, a steed, a rushing steed on the Carrach of Kildare, a hundred yards and English guards, dot, dot, dot. The sort of song that Cathal sang, as it was, his choice and his justification would be lonely and secret, and the killing he would do would look like murder but that was how it had to be. So, you know, is, is she coming back, looking back on that, that, um, that sort of passage, that sort of uh, sentiment from 20 years later in that passage in The Philosopher's Pupil, I wonder. I mean, you know, is it- It wouldn't is it surprise me. Yeah. Rethinking, you know, that that was murder, you know, that. It looked like murder, and it was murder. Yeah, no, I, yeah. I, I think I think you can certainly, you know, there are plenty of echoes on there in in, in later mm. books. Um, you know, we, we we think of the uh, the echoes of um, of under the net in philosophy people as well. Um, so I think there are, you know, there's there's certain I think you can certainly draw draw those um, draw those lines between those novels in a very in, interesting way. So th you know, thank you for for um, for raising those. Ian, I'd like to, to come to you for the uh, the final word, really, um, and um, just to reflect on how Irish she really was. I think, think um, for, for me now, listening for the, for, the, for the last hour or so, it seems to be an absolutely essential part of her makeup. Um, yes, yes and no. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think if we see um, Murdoch's Irishness as of the, the, the Southern Protestant variety, it, it's the experience of the conditional and the peripheral. Um, it's sort of an ability, as has been said, to slip in and out of Irishness. Like a coat, you can put it on, take it off. Um, 
if Murdoch may have seen herself uh, as Anglo-Irish, her writing, I think, might be better characterized as Hiberno-English in style, tone and character. Uh, that's, a different, that's a different emphasis and quite deliberate. Um, you know, writing to Charles Ritchie after her visit to, to, to Bowen's court in 1956, Elizabeth um, opined that only half her mind goes into her writing and she's frightened of the other half being left in a vacuum. She really deep down is an intellectual in the sense that I'm not. And in many ways that defines um, Bowen against, uh, or defines Murdoch against many, many Irish writers. Um, despite many concordances with the Southern Protestant mindset, to paraphrase Auden about Yeats, Mad Ireland didn't much hurt Murdoch into poetry. Her intellectual wellspring essentially, I think, lay elsewhere. Uh, in the literary, Murdoch only sporadically had, in the words of Chase White in The Red and the Green, an atavistic urge to return to the soil of Ireland. And Ireland vir offered virtually nothing to her philosophic journey. So I think um, at the last, while we might surmise that her Irishness was an anchor in an unknown sea for her, I think what really counts for the rest of us is her irisness. <laughs> I think that's a, a wonderful place to a wonderful place to end. And um, of course, we will be um, in in, um, in in later months and years to come. We will um, have um, specific episodes on the unicorn and, and one on the red and the green. But I think this is a really good um, episode for anybody who's interested in uh, getting to grips with her her, her possible Irishness. And I, and I think to to leave it on that kind of um, that possible edge there, between, as you say, between um, the Anglo-Irish and the um, and um, the uh, the Celtic influence is a, is a really good place to really good place to be. So my thanks to um, to um, Ian Dalton, to Julian Dooley, and to Francis White um, for what, what's been a, a fascinating a fascinating podcast for me, and I've I've learned so much. And um, and uh, thank you for for everyone for listening, and um, looking forward to the next one. <laughs>